Welcome to the official podcast of DogsDaily.com, a Sports Illustrated channel. Gets to the edge. Tony Michelle will send the Dogs home to the championship game. If you're looking for the latest Georgia Bulldog news in football, basketball, baseball, and recruiting, then you're in the right place. Hosted by Dogs Daily Riders, Jeremiah Stoddard, Kyle Funderburg, and Jonathan Williams. Here's pitch. And high out into right center with some carry. It's got a chance. This ball is out of here. Tucker Bradley has won it. Just sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for these hot takes you're about to listen to. Welcome back for another episode. We are excited. We have a a really fun one, I feel like, tonight. It should be a little bit different than normal. Uh, A lot of times we're all kind of on the same page with stuff. We're going to try to debate a little bit with something. We have a fun topic to go over around Georgia's offense this year. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, baseball and basketball with Georgia. A lot going on there this this week as well, so we're going to kind of break all that down for you guys. Um, But we're going to start. We have Brooks Austin with us again today. We're going to start with him. We have a fun topic, like I said. We're going to talk about the offensive leader in total yards that we think it's going to be at least in 2021. So, guys, what do we think? You know, I'll start with uh, Brooks. You're here as a guest, so we'll start with you. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, you don't have to address me like I'm some honorary guest. I'm, I'm, I'm just another guy. I'm just another guy over here on Dogs Daily just joining you. Um, but, no, I, I think this, for me, is more of a discussion about what style and what what kind of offense is Georgia going to be in 2021? Are they going to be, you know, uh, a JT Daniels-led offense? Are they going to be a Todd Munkin-led offense? Or are they going to be an offense that's protecting a defense? I, I think they go the other route. Um, I think they become a much more explosive offense. I think they score a lot more points. They score them quicker. They score them in bunches. Um, they score them in long shots and, and deep shots and things like that at a much higher rate. Uh, in 2021 and for that reason I I think you've got to start in the wide receivers room I know for years and years and years I I I can't even tell you when the last time I don't think it's ever when was the last time it happened where a wide receiver led Georgia in total yards it's never happened happened. Kyle I knew I knew my historian would tell me it's never happened so it's a really really go ahead Kyle I think because I came up with this question a few weeks ago because it's never even been a question going into a season at Georgia. It's always been whoever is the number one running back will lead the team in, in total yardage. 2002 was the only season I can think of where you entered in with a debate because, I mean, Terrence Edwards was on the team. He was a huge deal. and He's Moose the only is, receiver to ever even go over 1,000 yards yeah. in Georgia history, too. And Musa Smith didn't exactly light the world on fire as, as a freshman or sophomore. And, of course, he ended up having an outstanding season as a junior rush for so, 1200 yards here, here, here's the way i look at it right jt daniels entered we got four starts at, to look at him last year he, he averaged th- about 310 yards per game i think it was just over 307 so if you just extrapolate that or extrapolate that through a, a full 12 game season regular season talking about 3700 plus yards through the air if he makes no like jumps if he makes m- no more adjustments adjustments and, and gets any better which I fully believe he's going to get much better. He's going to look even better next year and more comfortable next year than it even was this year. So if that's what you believe, 
there's 3,700 yards worth of receiving yards out there to be had. Uh, and I, I think you could very well, and I put it out on Twitter today, and my super bold prediction is, you know, 1,200 yards, two guys to go over that this year. I think it's very, very plausible. Again, we're talking about 3,700 yards at least next year in the regular season. That does not include SEC championship game. That does not include where I think they're going to be, which is an in contention for a national title uh, game. So you very well could see JT Daniels go well over 4,000 yards, you know, in the air next year. There's plenty of guys there, I know, but history tells us in college football, it goes to there's two mouths to feed and everybody else gets kind of the table scraps when it comes to wide receivers. That's what history says. And those two guys for me are George Pickens or Jermaine Burton. So if I'm pinned down to give you an answer here as to who I think is going to lead in total offense, I'm going to say George right now. Yeah, I mean, you're on on. Then, you know, hitting the nail on the head there with JT as well, because I mean, in the four games he started, yeah, one of them was Cincinnati. And then you had Missouri and Mississippi State in there that weren't the best competition in the world there. But in those four games, he threw for like 1,200 yards. So theoretically, if you were to take that, you know, 1,200 yards, he could throw, you know, 4,800 yards, you know, in a 12 game season plus postseason. If we go further, he could break about, you know, 5,000 at that point, I don't think he'll get near that. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying statistically based on like a four game performance, it could be that high. And if you start getting in the 4,000 yard passing area, you're definitely going to have a receiver over thousand yards. That's a guarantee. And I'm, I'm with you. The first guy that's going to get there is going to be George Pickens because they definitely had a, a connection in those four games. You know, George Pickens in the first four games that he played, because he only played four games before JT got there, you know, with Stetson Bennett, he had 13 catches, for 140 yards in those four games. Well, once JT came back, Pickens had 23 catches for 373 yards. So that's 93 yards a game on average. He's a shots guy. He, yeah. J, JT and George both are deep ball specialists. It's what George does best. It's what JT wants to do best. And better yet, it's what Todd Munkin wants to do, man. That is his MO. That's who he is. That's his bloodline. That's what he lives by. Let's take shots. Let's throw the ball down the field. Uh, when we got one-on-one opportunities, you're, we're talking about a former wide receivers coach. It's where he got his start in football. It's what he loves. It's what he knows best. So he's designed an entire offense and a career of offensive coordinating based off giving wide receivers one-on-one opportunities and matching a quarterback that will take those shots. That's why I think he was so frustrated last year um, with the quarterback play that he had until they were ready to roll Daniels out there because, man, the deep shot accuracy was you know not, not even borderline skeptic. It was awful last year until Daniels took the helmet. And then all of a sudden, boom, things started opening up. Well, Munkin hadn't changed anything. The the offensive philosophy didn't change. He just had an actual guy to drive the Ferrari that he had built uh, instead of, you know, somebody that was going to crash it into the wall every fifth turn. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think George Pickens is definitely a safe pick with that because, like you said, that deep ball is going to be a very, very – um, big piece of our offense, not even just with Pickens, but you have Arian Smith, you know, Blaylock's going to be out there again, uh, hopefully once he gets ready to go with his second ACL tear. You know, they're these big targets and they're going to be getting open. There are going to be a lot of big play opportunities for us. So there's going to be a lot of yards in the air um, that you can't go wrong with Pickens at all. So we'll flip over to Kyle. What do you think? Um, you know, I mean, it's still just a toss up between, between Pickens and Burton. I guess it really just – I think it'll just depend on who takes that lead early. Um, I can see maybe um, Pickens gets kind of kind of blanketed a little bit. Um, 
maybe has a slow start to the season because he's just, you know, defense is just doing some more things, and Burton ends up being the the guy that burns everyone, and you know maybe he goes in like the fifth or sixth game of the year with a 200 yard lead on Pickens, and he just keeps that lead even as Pickens starts to starts to come along and and do his thing. Um, but that's of course if defenses are able to you know handle Pickens if they even try to devote all those resources to stopping Pickens um, and risk leaving other guys open. And then, of you course, know, like after, Brooks said. After we saw – I was just going to say, after we saw uh, Burton do what he did to Mississippi State, I mean, you really didn't see the the massive bracketed coverages for George. I mean, Cincinnati, hell, they they blitzed corners on, on George's side. They Cincinnati played a defense that was, I'm not scared of number one. I'm just going to play my defense. And I think that's a result of those other weapons. I mean, I, th- I think Jermaine's mm-hmm. one of Jermaine's worst games with JT at the helm in terms of just the box score was Cincinnati, you know, because they're, they're starting to pay attention to him a little bit more. Teams are going to recognize what's going on. They're going to identify what that dude does on tape, and they're going to try to take it away too. So, um, which kind of, I mean, it leads us into our, the, the somebody's got to take Zamir White here, right? Somebody, somebody's got to take the running back uh, in this system and, and, and what's going on. So, I'm willing to listen it out and, and hear the arguments. I, I know what my feelings are about the running back room and who should get the bulk of those carries and opportunities, but I'm open to listening to other suggestions. Well, Brooks, I'm glad you brought that up because as we all know, that's exactly who I wrote for in our article when we did it for our um, SI article about this. So the reason I went with Zamir White is there's really not any change in our running back room overall. We added Lavoisier Carroll to the running back mix, everything else is pretty much the same. And yes, I understand that there's going to be a ton of passing yards this season. That's a given. But even in, if you looked at, um, I think it was Missouri. Was it Missouri? We went, I think we threw for 299 yards and ran for 301, something like that. Mm-hmm. So we can be very balanced and we can score quickly like we did in that game in Munkin's system because we were definitely spreading the ball out. Now, once again, Missouri had a pretty bad year this year. So that's not the best competition to base that model on. But my point of it is, we run the ball a lot. Kirby's MO has always been to run the ball a lot. If you look at the past, um, what, five seasons with him, we run the ball close to 40 times per game. I think the lowest that we've ran it was 37 times in two different seasons, like per game on average. So we're going to run it at least 37 times. We're going to be splitting the ball up to a couple of people. I get that there's a lot of people in the backfield this year. But at the same time, it's got to be Zamir White to me because he was already on pace for a thousand yards or getting close to a thousand yards in a 10 game season this year, Mm -hmm. including our bowl game. So if you give this man 12 games in the regular season and you're adding four cupcake games, I'm going to point out because he didn't have those cupcake games this year. So you add those four games that are going to be a lesser competition for the most part. The first game is Clemson. So that's a good game, obviously. So we'll say three. So three games that are less competition. And then you add another bowl game and then you add, you know, potentially SEC championship game or playoffs, whatever. He could play as many as 14 games, 15 games. And in 10 games, he had almost 800 yards um, on the ground. He had 800 total yards with his receiving stuff as well. And in the past few years, Georgia's had two guys go over a thousand yards two years in a row in the like on the ground. So Kirby Mm -hmm. likes to run the ball. I don't think he's going to get so far away from it that you're going to take those carries away so much that he's not going to be pushing a thousand yards himself easily like he was this year. All, all well and good. Okay. Um, but to me, 
all of that Kirby's a run heavy guy. All of that was before he shelled out $2 million for an NFL coordinator. And all of that was before he went out and stacked his quarterback room. Like he's never done before. Um, to me, uh, all signs are indicating that this guy now knows, and you got to remember that that deep guys, they, they might get into some shootouts th- this next year. They really might. I mean, it is no longer a guarantee with what's going on in the back end and how sh- it's not just corner. They're shallow as all get out at star. God forbid one of those safeties goes down. What I mean, it's getting it's going to get real thin real quick if something happens. And at that point, it's hey, we've got to we've got to change modes now. And I think that's something that they're going to be working on all offseason. We've got to change modes now. No longer can we score thirty points, sit on our hands in the entire second half, and just run the ball and bet on our defense because. The bet on the defense might not be as as stable as it once was. It's still going to be really, really good. They're still talented over there, but again, man, you you might see some shootouts. That that LSU national championship team had, I think, six guys drafted off that defense. That defense was still giving up twenty seven points a game, and that included the cupcakes. So, I I think philosophies are changing. The rosters changing, and the rosters change causes a uh, philosophy change. And I, I think you're going to have to score points this year. And the best way to do that, to do it quickly, is to throw the football. And then you can get into the discussion about, hey, well, there's Zamir, there's Kenny, there's James, there's Kendall. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of mouths to feed, right? That's the thing we keep hearing. There's a lot of mouths to feed in that running back room. Yeah, I'll agree with you on that part, too. So one of my favorite quotes um, in general is change is inevitable, but growth is optional. So college football and football in general is changing to where you have higher powered offenses, throwing the ball a lot more. Georgia has been a little bit behind on that as far as still being a little bit more of a run heavy offense in general. Now, to touch base on what you just said as well, though, as having so many guys in the backfield, the feed, if you look back at the 2017 season. So we had Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle. We had Swift. Perrion and Holyfield all on that roster. We ran mm-hmm. the ball. That was one of our biggest run heavy seasons where we ran the ball 673 times at nearly 40 to, uh, 45 times a game and for almost 4,000 yards rushing that season. So our best season with Kirby Smart has been running the ball extremely aggressively. And yes, we had a freshman quarterback, which is the big difference there. So the difference is this year we have a quarterback that most will think will be a first round draft pick. And some are even going to say he's going to potentially win the Heisman. I don't know if I'll go that far yet, but he could be in contention for sure. He will be in contention for it for sure. But my point of it is, even though there's what I just listed, five guys that all had good careers at Georgia. Harrion's going to be the the lowest one on the uh, totem pole as far as like his production at Georgia. Even Holyfield went for a thousand yards in his career. Swift went for more than a thousand yards a couple of times. Sony went for a thousand yards. Hell, Chubb went for a thousand yards three of his four seasons at Georgia. So my point is, even though that the offenses are changing, I still feel like I'm I'm gonna have to give it to to Zamir White because I don't see it changing so drastically this year. Now give it three years, and then I think it'll be we might flip the discussion where it's almost expected to be a wide receiver in this. But I think at this this point, I, I'm still kind of firm on Zamir White. The well, only I thing, think. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think. Honestly, I picked George. I did not pick a running back, but I think if you are going to go the running back route, this is the way that I would look at it. You, know, I wouldn't necessarily look at it the running game because we know that Zamir White's going to get his yards, McIntosh is going to get his yards, Cook, whatever. But Munkin involving the running backs in the passing game is where I would look at it. And just looking at it back when he was over at Cleveland, Nick Chubb had about 275 yard receiving yards, I think, that year when he Munkin was his offensive coordinator. 
And so I think if Zamir White were to get maybe around 900 rushing yards and then he tacks on maybe another 215 or 250 receiving yards onto his total offense, I think that's maybe where you could take the argument as, oh, Zamir White's going to be the guy that leads their team in total offense where – as it, or maybe even another running back if they want to if Macintosh or someone else. So I think that's the angle that I would go at it if I were to choose a running back. I I think the going back to the the seventeen to to twenty, you know, it's the the two thousand seventeen team versus what Georgia's got going on currently. Jake Fromm threw the ball more than thirty times once that entire season. It was in the national championship game against Alabama. Threw it thirty two times. Two of uh. JT Daniels' four starts last season, he threw for more than 30 attempts. And he threw for 400 yards in both of those games. And Georgia won both of those games. So I, that's the difference to me. We're, we're seeing the evolution because of, A, a, a difference in identity of offensive coordinator, and, B, the difference in the roster. We also have to talk about that offensive line they had in 2017. Some pretty damn good football players playing up front on that offensive line. We're headed into this year. You know, there there are some questions in terms of who's going to start where. It's not a question of talent. It's a question of, ex, you know, experience and things like that. So it's easier to hide uh, a, 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 a young offensive line in terms of experience with quick game and passing and a quarterback that understands pocket maneuverability and things like that than it is to say, all right, gentlemen, we're going out today. We're going to run the ball 50 times. And if we win, it's because you guys knocked everybody off the ball. If we lose, it's because you didn't. It's really, really hard to do that with an, uh, with an inexperienced offensive line. Um, so to me, and I know I've been pounding the, the drum on this, to me, it's going to be a throw to open up the run game for the first time in a long time at Georgia. But that's who Munkin is. Again, that's, that's his MO. That's who he wants to be. And I firmly believe that no matter what all the theories are and, you know, uh, conspiracy theories are about Kirby and being overbearing and over-controlling about the offense, He's never had a guy like this, right? He's never had a guy that he didn't previously work with that was one of his buddies that he had power over or anything like that. This is a guy he took from the NFL. Granted, he got he got released from the, the Browns, but he was going to get another job in the NFL, I would imagine, or he was, probably could get one now. They kept this guy on the roster or on the staff for a reason. He's a, <clears throat> excuse me, he's an older coach. He's experienced. He's not going to sit there and sit on his hands because his head coach told him that we're going to be a run-heavy offense. No. You, can't, you brought me in here. You pay me what you pay me. You let me recruit the players that I want. You let me set the roster like I want. Now let me use the roster like I want. And I think we saw that over the last four games. And, of course, Munkin isn't just an NFL guy. He, he has been a head coach at the college level. Of course. I mean, again, like like you said, you're not going to bring in a, a NFL guy to, to uh, overmanage him. You're also not going to bring in a former uh, head coach who ended his career on a high note, um, both record-wise and statistically on offense. You're not going to uh, overmanage that uh, uh, that guy. Munkin's best season in college as a, as a head coach was 2015 with Southern Miss, and Nick Mullins threw for 4,400 yards. But also in that same season, he had two really, really good running backs in Ito Smith and Jalen Richard that ended up going in the NFL based almost solely off of that season. They went 9-5. and five, and, and won their conference and won their division. And again, we're talking about 4,400 yards through the air. And he had two backs go over 1,000 yards whilst, I mean, and while also having the, the production receiving-wise. Um, well, there so, are two receivers that went over 1,000 yards on that team. Yes, too, they right? did. Well, uh, one. One had uh, a Michael okay. Thomas, not the Michael Thomas, 
Um, mm-hmm. A, Michael Thomas had 71 receptions for 1,391 yards. Now, Casey Martin, their slot guy, their space creator, um, kind of looks like if you were to clone Lad McConkey and throw 20 pounds on his on his backside, um, that's what Casey Martin looks like. Casey Martin had nine, 925 yards okay. and led the team in receptions with 80. So the the evolution, the ultimate evolution of Munkin's offense, and you saw a little bit of it last year, was, you know, Georgia went from running 65 plays during the, the Coley uh, regime and the Jim Chaney regime, and he bumped it up to 68. Well, Munkin really wants to hover around like 72, 73 plays. We saw them do that to open the season against Arkansas, and it didn't quite go as well as they were expecting. And I'm pretty sure there was an offensive meeting that said, hey, look, hey, guys, we, we don't have to do this yet. I mean, I know y'all want to do this in the future. I know you want to play fast and run a whole bunch of plays, but it didn't work today. And that's when you heard Kirby start doing this stuff at, at press conferences where it's like, well, we got to get back to our brand of football. Well, what is Kirby's brand of football? Kirby's brand of football is downhill, shove it down your throat type of style. Um We'll see if he lets up on that this year. I think he will. Yeah, I mean, but my – I'll still go back to this as well because you pointed out that Southern Miss had – their two running backs went over a thousand yards that same season, right? Is that what we were saying? Yeah, Edo Smith and Jalen Richard. Both of them went just over a thousand. Right. So even in that pass heavy offense where you said, I think you said he went over 4,000 yards passing for Nick Mullins, they still had two running backs able to go over a thousand yards rushing. So with that, I still stand by my decision as far as white goes. Now I'll, I'll say this too, because I know how you think about this as well, Brooks. We've talked in, in the discord channel and other stuff about this as far as what you think the running back room is going to stack up as. So I'll let that kind of segue to, so Evan's not on here with us right now, but he also wrote in that article, Evan's pick for who was going to lead the, the team in total offense was Kendall Milton. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of aligns with what you were, you know, discussing the other day with us, Brooks. Yeah, I, I look, there, there's a difference between what I think is going to happen and what I think should happen. You guys know I'm not I'm not afraid to give opinions. My, my opinion is that, and it's film-based, it's film-oriented, has nothing to do with you know, preconceived notions about an athlete before they even get on campus. This is what I've seen on tape and consistently seen on tape. I think there is no question that the optimal version of Georgia's offense is with Kendall Milton operating as the early down backs that that bell cow lead uh, carry back, giving him 200 carries next year. And then all the gadget stuff you want to do, all the screen game, all the you know, running back releases and things like that and getting running backs matched up one-on-one with linebackers. Nobody does that better than Kenny McIntosh. And I think we got a glimpse of it in the uh, sh- in the Peach Bowl. The whole entire last possession was, hey, let's get Kenny the ball in space and just let him go get first downs and we'll move the ball down the field that way. I think JT checked it down to him like three times of the six plays that they ran. So I know that Kenny can do everything that James can do in terms of the passing game. Now, does he have the vertical speed on a go route? No, but you're not going to catch too many teams sleeping like you did in Alabama of all people in that football game where James Cook motioned out of the backfield. That that Those kind of uh, wrinkles of your offense, they're going to get found out. I, I think Kenny offers the most supreme version of James in the sense that he can do everything in the passing game, and he's not a dead indication that you are now throwing the ball when he's on the field. When Kenny's out there, you don't. there is no predictability. You don't, he can run in, t- in between the tackles. 
He can bounce it outside. He can be a threat out of the backfield as a pass catcher. He can motion out outside and run go routes and do all that kind of stuff just like James can. The difference is I don't trust James Cook's ability to run in between the tackles. We've seen it for four or three years now, coming back for a fourth, and it's never really been there. Uh, granted, he's never really got a bunch of opportunities, but that goes back to that discussion of how your offensive coordinator chooses to use you lets me know a direct indication of what he thinks your skill set is. And the way in which they used Kendall and the way in which they used Kenny, I think that duo is the optimal version of Georgia's offense. Is that how it's going to play out? Absolutely not. Okay, Zamir, Zamir White will most likely start the season as the number one running back. Does he finish that way? I don't know. Kendall Milton is so supremely good, man. It's going to be hard to keep that kid off the field. When he's averaging eight, nine yards a carry like he was seemingly doing last season when he was in and when he was healthy, how do you keep that kid off the field, man? I mean, seriously. I think, I think also when the offensive line isn't like dominating teams, I think Kendall is the better option just because I think his his vision is better than Zamir's. You've seen on tape, Zamir kind of kind of misses some holes. Um, you know, not great block plays, but hole, but but holes are there, gaps are there, and and he's missed them. Um, we saw that in the bowl game last year. We saw that time this year, and I think you pointed that out in your study on the bowl game this past year. Uh, Kendall, I, I like. I think that's he's he's not like miles away better than Zamir in every way, but vision for me, for what I've seen in high school, his tape, and last year a little bit we saw uh, Kendall's like that guy when the offensive line is not dominant. So he, Kendall's definitely got – oh, go ahead. No, no, you, you, you're you good. Go. I've been talking a bunch. Hit it up. So, um, so Kendall, Kendall definitely, I would say, has not just better, like, vision than um, what Zamir has shown us in, like, you know, last season, but he also is so much more elusive behind the line of scrimmage. And like you said, with that offensive line, maybe having a little bit of holes or issues being young, that kind of thing. He broke a lot of tackles in the backfield and, you know, made big plays when they shouldn't have been anything there at all. Now, so did Zemir White a couple of times. I think he had a big play like that in uh, the Cincinnati game where he broke a few tackles and just kept on going. Um, So he's definitely that strong guy as well. So they can both break a lot of tackles and stuff. But just to kind of touch base, too, with what Brooks said a minute ago, you were saying that you would think it would be best case scenario is if he had 200 plus carries. Well, one of the comparisons that he gets all the time and that everyone said, I know I've said it. I know Brooks, I think you've said it a couple of times too, is he reminds us of Nick Chubb. He does. He's very similar in a, in a lot of ways. And the last back, the only running back in uh, Kirby Smart's you know time at Georgia that has gone over 200 carries in a season is Nick Chubb. And he did it two different times um, in 2016, 2017. And the closest, the other closest guy was Swift at one, I think it was 196 carries um, in 2019. But that was also because he didn't have anyone in the backfield with him. I, Typically our running backs say around 150. You know, I think he, he's the only one. I think the, the more apt comparison for me is a guy more like Najee Harris, you know, real, real tall. Like mm-hmm. he, he's 230 pounds, but he doesn't really look 230 pounds because you don't realize how big he is in terms of height. Um, Nick, Nick Chubb's more like, six foot fire hydrant like six foot 228 230 built like a brick shit house and and, and it's just mean looking right whereas Kendall and Najee and guys like even like Le'Veon Bell they're a little bit more stretched out they're up to that six two six three range I think Kendall provides a level of versatility that those other guys do not I, I know it's easy to say 
He looks like Nick Chubb because we see the red and black. We see, uh, you know, him running physically. We see him, you know, not really animated. He's he's kind of a quiet kid. He's 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 basically he is an introvert from what I know about him, um, just like Nick. But the play style to me, the patience behind the line of scrimmage, the ability to jump cut, the ability to process all of your reads immediately and really, really quickly and efficiently. Those things remind me more of like Najee uh, and, and more like a guy like Le'Veon Bell, where if you ever watched Le'Veon in his prime, he looked like he was dancing behind the line of scrimmage. It would frustrate the heck out of offense coordinators until they realized what kind of gift that they had. He was a guy that understood the zone blocking schemes in front of him and could find windows and holes off backside cuts that nobody else could. That's what Kendall provides to me uh, as opposed to where Nick is the best version of a one cut downhill back that George has had in probably since Herschel. That was, that was what Herschel was best at. Get him outside, you know, stretch, stretch runs, get him going North and South immediately as possible, allow him to make quick reads. And then nobody's going to stop that freight train when it gets going North and South. Whereas a guy like Kendall, he, he plays the running back position. Like you're playing Tetris. If you remember the game of Tetris where you're moving pieces around and you're just trying to find holes. That's why you see no negative runs from a guy like Kendall. Yeah, it's the it's the it's that elusiveness that you're talking about, but it's also the vision. The kid has great vision and great patience, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that when he was playing high school ball out there in Clovis, he didn't really have a, a whole lot of great help around him. His offensive line wasn't filled with four and five stars. His offensive line was filled with a lot of guys that looked like I did in high school, dog water, like not good. Um, <laughs> and a lot of that had to you know developed him to be able to run with patience, deliver the blocks in front of you, do things like that, which, to go back to one of our previous conversations, is going to help out an offensive line that, guys, it's not going to win, uh, you know, any type of awards this year, okay? There's not going to be – I don't believe there's going to be some superstar that emerges from this offensive line that we're all of a sudden talking about. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to be about kind of like it was last year where at the end of the year when we sit down and do grades, I would have given Georgia's – offensive line about a b minus and most of that good grade came from pass pro they pass pro really 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 well last year they didn't really win the line of scrimmage down in and down out in the run game and i don't think they will this year yeah so yeah two things to add about uh kindles i mean we both mentioned his vision that and interesting that you mentioned this high school i remember you know watching his tape in high school there's one play that stood out and as soon as i saw it i knew he'd be a a big deal in, in, in the SEC was, you know, a defender uh, comes off the edge. He sees it, you know, the play is going one way, and the defender has to stop. Well, Kendall, I mean, he sees it before anyone else sees this guy coming, and he just changes direction of play and turns it into a 60-yard touchdown, whereas a back with okay vision is getting popped in the backfield for a loss of four yards. I mean, that he did that his senior year of high school. I saw that and knew he'd be a, a star for Georgia. Um, second thing about Milton, I thought it was interesting that everyone brought the Nick Chubb comparison because when I watched his high school tape before the season, I always thought he looked more like Gurley, especially in the open field. Yeah, um, it's that it's that big, got, tall back. Gurley, Gurley's mm-hmm. a 6'3 guy, too. Mm-hmm. More of a threat to receive out of the backfield as well, which Gurley did a decent amount of. Yeah, Kendall in the mess with a lot of players around him looks like Chubb. You know, he had that one play where he had where he, where he high steps a lot with a lot of guys around him. That was very reminiscent of that, you know, screen pass or that yeah, that screen pass Chubb had against Auburn his freshman year. Mm-hmm. 
uh, a lot of that's where that comparison came from. But really, like like you said, like since high school, I've always felt like Kendall looked more like a Todd Gurley, especially in the open field. He runs just like Gurley. I think for me, yeah. the the number one thing that I'll be digging in on for spring practice when it comes to the running back room is how well is Kendall doing in blitz pickup? I, it's mm-hmm. the number. It's like playing special teams at Georgia for Kirby. It's his get off. It's like it's it's the box you have to check before you get onto the field for these kids, especially defenders. But as running backs, man, if you can't handle blitz pickup, you cannot play for Kirby or any of his offensive coordinators. He just won't let you do it. If you if you are a risk to go out there and blow an assignment and blitz pickup and let a free rusher hit the quarterback, it, it's a quick way to lose your playing time. Okay. And I, you yeah. know, we can go back and, and I, I think that's the area that guys like, uh, you know, Zamir and James have over some of these younger guys. They've identified, they've seen every blitz at this point, hundreds of times, whether it be in practice or in games. So they're comfortable when it happens. They're comfortable when it gets thrown at them. I think Kendall got much better at that as the season progressed. Um, but if he doesn't have a down pat a hundred percent, then yeah, you'll you'll probably see a very similar rotation to what you saw this year. A good example of why pass protection is so important too. If people remember just the last game we played, so against Cincinnati, um, the interception that JT Daniels threw on that play, I think it was Amir White completely missed a blitzing linebacker. Yeah, and just I, let him run right I've, past. Him. I've broken down that play. I I think it was an I know it was an RPO, and I know it was an automatic like. They, they Cincinnati had too many numbers in the box. It's simple, like how many do they have? How many do we have? They have more than right. we have. We throw the the back shoulder fade to George. I I personally, the way I interpret the play, the way I interpret inside zone RPOs, that was an offensive line breakdown. But because I just think they misidentified the, the the point of the attack where they were supposed to be working, they ended up working backside. The front side inside linebacker just, I mean, had an alleyway right down a gap. Uh, but that being said. As a running back, we got to be a little more aware. I'm, I'm with you. We, if we see somebody barreling down a gap and we don't have the football, let's probably put a hat on him. Let's just get his way just a little bit because we know it's a we know it's a quick read. We know it's a one step <clears throat> one step throw the back shoulder face. So I, I'm with you there. But I also know that every m- most of the great things you've heard Kirby say about Zamir White in post game press conferences, dating back to one of his very first games against Murray State, his first opportunity to really get a bunch of carries after Vanderbilt in 2019. First thing Kirby talked about was a, a, a Mike linebacker blitz pickup in A-gap. I mean, he basically opened his press conference with it because everybody wanted to talk about Zamir. I think Zamir had like 81 yards that game and had some, you know, pretty decent breakaway run type things. And Kirby was like, yeah, I mean, it's great to sit there and read the box score. He did his, you know, typical the media don't know football. It was like, it's great to read the box score, but ain't nobody's going to be talking about Zamir White picking up blitzes. And that's what stood out to me because that's what he cares about. Again, it's that number one box you have to check, especially this year when I do think, I do think they throw it 35 times a game. I I really do. I think they run 70 plays a game and they throw it 35 times and run it 35. They will still be a 50, 50 split football team. They're going to run a few more plays this year than they did last year. And it's not a drastic difference. It's really not. It's 68 from last year to 70 this year, but they're going to be much more explosive. Uh, in the way in which they operate. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I definitely think they'll be taking those extra shots. So in those 70 plays, out of those 35 like pass plays, you won't see, like especially early on in the season when we had Stetson Bennett, so many of them were just, you know, just dump off passes, you know, five yards downfield. He he seemed to struggle, you know, with the deep ball accuracy a little bit himself some. Um, and then he 
everyone knows he had some issues with like the batted balls, but that's, I'm not blaming that on like height by any means. I think part of it was just, he wasn't getting into the windows and throwing through and he wasn't, he didn't seem very comfortable throwing it over the middle of the field, especially shorter over the middle of the field. I would kind of counter that with the fact that like when I watched it on tape, every game Stetson played, they, man, they ran more mesh routes than ever before. If you ever play uh, NCAA or anything like that, mesh is like a, a go-to man beater and even sometimes a zone beater if you can find the windows. Man, they ran five-yard crossers and, and mixing them and meshing them more than ever. It's why Alabama, they spent their whole entire off week, it looked like, leading up to Georgia, t- teaching their defense line to get their hands up in the interior defense line because they knew this this whole entire offense right now with Munkin at, that he's designed for Stetson was – built around the fact that, hey, if we ask this kid to take a five-step drop and throw a big boy speed out like we saw JT Daniels do the whole time, where it's like it's really a 15-yard throw, but it's actually when you turn when you take into account how far the ball is traveling, like a 40-yard throw, and it's got to be on a line. Stetson can't do that, so they knew that. They designed an offense around it. It's why you saw plays like Kyrus Jackson against Auburn where he's running that deep over, right, and they're just hitting him in the middle of the field or – you know, trying to hit the tight end over the middle of the field, doing things like that. They operated in between the hashes for five games, and then they would occasionally take their deep shots, and they just couldn't hit them. Whereas when Daniels got in there, the mesh routes were gone. I didn't see him on tape. It was all one guy's running a post, the other guy's running a deep over, and another guy's running a dig. Okay, it's a whole bunch of big boy routes. We got a guy with a rifle in there inside of 30 yards. We're going to let him rip it, and we're going to let him spin it, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, And I think, again, you're going to see more of that this year. You'll see the bubbles. You'll see the tunnel screens. You'll see all that stuff that's added into a traditional air raid offense. But, man, you're going to see a whole lot of seam seam go routes from Arian Smith. You're going to see a lot of post-off heavy play action of George Pickens. You're going to see a lot of big boy 15-yard digs from Jermaine Burton. That's what this offense is going to look like. You're going to see corner routes from guys like Darnell Washington, wheels from, from running backs out of the backfield. Gone are the days where we're just going to sit and throw slants and back shoulder fates. That's not what it is anymore. Yeah, the key difference between uh, Bennett and Daniel in this regard and why I think um, our leader on offense this year will be a receiver um, is the confidence at quarterback. Um, Bennett was not going to throw those 50-50 balls. No. Um, he just did not – he did not believe in himself. It's, not in, it's not in his DNA either. Yeah, someone has to be wide open for Bennett to throw it. Daniels, I think – I don't want to misquote him, but I think at one point he said that a 50-50 ball to George Pickens isn't really a 50-50 ball. Yeah. It's more in Pickens' favor. Like, he has that confidence in himself and his receivers. If Pickens is covered but Pickens has good position, Daniels is going gonna, is gonna to throw it to him just because he believes in his arm and he believes in a Pickens' ability. And the same with Burton. And the same with other receivers on this team. I mean, he Pickens, was he was doing it back to his days at USC. I mean, he was chunking it up to Amon Ross Hay Brown and chunking it up to Michael Pittman. The only difference is now he's he's not like a hundred percent accurate. He hasn't figured out everything in terms of his deep ball accuracy, but it's gotten significantly better. It's why you saw him perform much better. It had nothing to do with having better weapons around him or whatever the narrative is. The dude's just a better football player now than he was when he was 17 years old, 18 years old, starting as a true freshman. At, at USC he had weapons though and by God he threw it up I mean he would throw up some prayers to those guys because again you guys you guys hit on it he trusts himself he believes in himself he carries himself with a lot of confidence with the ball in his hands 
and he trusts his White House. If you don't, if you don't want to throw it to him, don't recruit him. He said it himself. Definitely wasn't exactly because it definitely wasn't just trusting himself too. Because like <clears> the <throat> comment he made after one of the games was, "When I have George Pickens down there, I, I mean, I'm just going to throw it up and give him a chance." He almost said that exactly. I wish I had the exact quote, but he literally was just saying I he's going to throw it I up and give him a chance. I did tweet that exactly. I said, "JT Daniels, uh, screw it, George is down there somewhere." And guess who retweeted? <laughs> guess who retweeted it? J- JT Daniels himself retweeted it. So, yeah, that's exactly his thought that's process. That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's not just the confidence on deep balls. I mean, it's the confidence um, everywhere on the field with his receivers. Mm-hmm. That's that's why I think the 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 passing is going to go way up because his, um, his, his confidence on things like that is even beyond Jake Fromm, in my opinion. Um, yeah, he that, definitely seems like he understands a lot of what's going on as well, not just having the arm talent, but understanding a lot too. And I think that'll help with the, you know, throwing the ball a lot more this year. It'll be interesting to see how that changes. I do want to touch on one more thing and ask you one last question before we let you go, Brooks. I know we've had you for a while, so I'm going to let you jump off in a second. I wanted to touch base on this real quick because you mentioned this a minute ago as far as how Georgia's offense was, offensive line in pass protection was, you know, its best area and then a lot lower, you know, quality when it went into to running and and trying to push the line and do all that is mm-hmm. part of that because of the guys in the system we had right now we're still part of Sam Pittman's and you know previous uh, offensive uh, coordinator and staff with James Coley and stuff that kind of guys in there rather than the different types of guys because I know you've touched base on this before and there's a different breed coming in at offensive line a different style a different like athleticism and everything is that the biggest reason you think that, that was an issue this year yeah, I, I've said it a, a bunch of times. You know, Matt Luke's left tackle looks a whole lot more like Laramie Tunsil than it does like Xavier Truss. You know what I mean? Like it's it's an athletic profile that they're ty- they're they're starting to recruit at, at, at the offensive line position. But yeah, I, I think the main thing when I watched them last year and, and, and did all my deep dives on them that, that stood out to me was anytime a team slanted or stunted really really heavy on them on early rundowns, it confused them. They had guys turning the wrong way a whole bunch of clips of, you know, two, sometimes three, maybe even four offensive linemen where they're turned or like within five or six yards, they're turning around looking at the ball carrier. And it's never a good position to be in as an offensive line. I mean, you always want to have your butt to the ball carrier, right? That's what they teach you in peewee football. So when when teams started slanting and stunting on them, the only, the only counter for that is to start running more outside zone plays, more counter, more power things like this where you're now playing on the angles that they're providing you um, with, you know, slants and stunts and and plays like pin and pull. Georgia eventually, towards the end of the season, I think right after the Auburn game against Tennessee, they put in counter, and it looked awful. Well, by the time they went to Alabama, counter had been cleaned up just a little bit better. Uh, By the end of the year, they were running it pretty well Um, against Alabama. Alabama was doing a whole bunch of front-side slants and stunts with their three technique and their linebackers. To shut down inside zone, the second half, Georgia came out and started running some pin and pull type stuff where, you know, front side tackles blocking down and and a, two, a guard in the center are pulling or two guards are pulling, trying to get outside and capture the edge. Well, the only problem is for four years under Sam Pittman, you recruited guys like Isaiah Wilson. You recruited guys like uh, Xavier Trust. You recruited guys like Owen Condon, uh, these big monstrous, you know, guys that are, are real lumbering in terms of their athleticism. Whereas now you're recruiting more guys like Amarius Mims, Broderick Jones, Cedric Van Brandt Granger, uh, you know, even Dylan Fairchild's an incredible athlete for 300 pounds, doesn't have an ounce of fat on him. So like these are the types of Michael Morris at 300 and whatever he's weighing right now, 
um because he is he is heavy there's a, a little nug for you 40 minutes into this um <laughs> he, he is a little heavy right now whatever he's weighing he's still an incredible athlete um those are the types of individuals they recruiting so yeah a, as you change your scheme you've got to change the profiles that you're recruiting and it's going to take a little while before guys match up to it uh jamari sawyer is a nasty move the guy off the point inside run inside zone blocker his strength is not getting out into space and 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 doing things like that even though i know he played tackle this year but that's kick sliding not you know running screen plays and things like that ben cleveland great prospect think he's going to be a third or fourth round draft pick but if you're drafting that kid to think you're going to run outside zone and 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 get get him involved in the screen game you're out of your mind you've lost your mind he's just not that individual those guys won't be recruited anymore at Georgia. They will recruit the superior athlete over the superior frame. 6'7", 315 is great, but is it 6'7", 315 that moves like Owen Condon, or is it 6'7", 315 that moves like Amarius Mims? Amarius Mims will always be a take because he's a freak athlete. He moves like a tight end. Owen Condon, though a great young football player, will no longer be a take at Georgia, I wouldn't imagine, because, again, he doesn't fit the, sk- the skill set that Luke wants them to have. And for the record, I mean, you don't see guys like that playing for Alabama. There's Evan Neal, but pff, Evan Neal's a freak athlete. Go go search Evan Neal on Twitter and see that video of him split squatting or split jumping on two boxes that are like 36 inches tall. He's an insane athlete, okay? Dwayne Brown. Dwayne Brown's 350 pounds, but he moves like a bear, okay? Uh, you know, they're Alex Leatherwood, their tackle they just left. That guy's, I mean... Again, not an not an ounce of fat on that dude. He's a freak athlete. They run pin and pull as well as anybody, and they counteract you know slants and stunts better than anybody. So that's what college football has evolved into nowadays. If you're one of these guys that just thinks you can line up and push people off the point of the attack, down in and down out. I don't care if you have Andrew Thomas. I don't care if you have Solomon McKinley. I don't care if you have Trey Hill, Ben Cleveland, and Isaiah Wilson. All guys that are going to play on on Saturday or on Sundays. Well, guess what? When you run across a defensive line like Auburn in 2019, they're going to stonewall you. They are going to shut your run game down. And you got to hope and pray that your running back's good and making people miss. That's what DeAndre was. So it worked out there for him. They won that football game, but it didn't look pretty. In the second half, they could not run the football. They had, I think, five consecutive three and outs because everybody in the stadium knew what they were doing. When that becomes what's happening on offense, when you become predictable, when you don't have a second, third, and fourth pitch in your arsenal, SEC defenses are going to get after you. I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're Mississippi State, Kentucky. It does not matter. If you are predictable and defenses know what you do, you're doing, they're going to shut you down. They're going to shut you down quick. The, the predictability at Georgia is no longer. You're not going to see it in the run game. You're not going to see it in the pass game, period. Uh, there's a bunch of innovative minds over there, uh, and, and they're forcing it upon their players to be innovative as well. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I, I'm with you on the fact that you said going into before you even broke all that down for us that this year you don't expect the you know offensive line to be much better. And there's a reason for that, too, because like you said, it takes time to build that up. These guys don't come in there. The guys with Matt Luker you know, freshmen right now, and they're just a couple of them in that aspect of it. So there's going to take some time for them to grow, fill in those spots over the next couple of years is where you'll see the biggest yeah. change in that and where they match a little bit better. Um, and I know I know everyone's – and I, say, I hate to cut you off, but I know you're probably no, letting me go, so I'm, I want to get this point in. I know everyone's super excited about the Clemson game and, and that being the start to the season, but I think it's going to force Kirby and Todd Munkin and Matt Luke's hand in the sense that 
hey, man, we're, we're going to have to start this season with the older guys, even if they're not as superior talented as a, an Amarius Mims or a Broderick Jones. I don't want to go up to Charlotte and worry if my left tackle, who's making his first career start, is going to blow an assignment the second play of the game. I cannot have that happen. So I think what the Clemson game has done is your chances of Cedric Van Pran Granger starting at center the first game of the year now, if it was if it was San Jose State, then maybe, maybe that happens. Maybe they let him get his feet wet. But now, no, I, I think they're they're drastically decreased. Uh, same thing for uh, Mims and, and Broderick Jones out there at one of the tackle spots. I think they start the season the way they finish the season, barring any type of injuries or just some insanely good spring practice performance from one of those young guys. Yeah, that's a point that you hit again that we talked about in the Discord. I think it was today because we were we kind of mentioned what we were going to be talking about tonight on the on the chat here. And somebody was pointing out that with it being the first game of the season, even talking about like running backs and stuff like that, that you're going to see the more experienced guys run out there, especially in that game, because the experience is going to be very important against a team like Clemson to start. You can't really try to figure things out in game one like you would normally do, because normally we're playing like Arkansas State or somebody like that in game one. Clemson's a very big difference. Um, it's a lot higher competition level. It's going to need a lot more of the experience, not just talent, because experience is very important against good teams. Now, talent can outweigh experience in some areas. But in that game going into the season, you're definitely going to want to go with the experienced guys because they're not scrubs. They're still talented guys. So they'll still be the guys I expect to go out there to start with as well. But Brooks, I appreciate it. I know I've had you on here for probably 45 minutes or so. I appreciate your time. We'll let you jump off and we'll have you back on at some point again. All right, gentlemen, y'all have a good one. I appreciate you. Oh, before I go, um, let's let's do an over-under. I'm, I'm just going to give you a, a stat line on what I think Ben Cleveland's going to do at Georgia's Pro Day. You ready? Four, okay. He's going to measure in at 6'6", 343 pounds. Okay, he's going to run at 498. You heard that, 498. And he's going to bench press 48 reps at 225. Book it. Book it. That's what's happening. Brooks, I got five dollars, or actually, you know what? I got I got a month worth of your subscription you service on there Patreon. You now you're getting. I got now you're a businessman. <laughs> I've got Let's a month worth of <laughs> that says he hits fifty on the bench press. But we appreciate Brooks getting on here like we always do, and. Yeah, Ben Cleveland's a freak nature. Mm -hmm. He's one of those guys that, like, in the scheme, though, he is one of those he's, – he's really good at just pushing people off their spot. He was one of the problems when we were looking at running counter and stuff like that, and we're trying to pull him at guard to lead block and stuff in space. It, it wasn't working very well early on in the season. He did a little bit better later on in the year, but that's something that I'm, I can't wait to see him at the pro day as well because the dude's a freak. He's huge. So – I mean, that should be a lot of fun. I mean, he's a Georgia Mountain boy, just refined. Because yeah. they're, they're all born big up there. Mm -hmm. It's just some applied. There's something stuff. in the water up there in Stevens County. I <laughs> mean, it's it's all over North Georgia. I mean, Blairsville, um, Raymond County, all, all those areas, White County, they all grow big up there. Yeah, they're big boys. Gilmer, Gilmer especially. Mm -hmm. There's some big boys. I don't know, guys. This is a This is a good start to the episode here. Brooks, we had him on here for a long time. We weren't sure how long we were going to have him. We have a good bit of other stuff to go over. We may end up breaking this down into like two episodes as far as like once we publish it so it's not too long, or we'll see what it gets to once we get done with it because we still got to talk about a couple of things that we can't ignore and not talk about this week at all. I'll start. We'll save basketball for last because that's 
there are some changes in that, by the way, which I sent you guys something to, today. I always forget to do this. Today is February 25th. It's Thursday. Georgia plays South Carolina on Saturday in basketball. Georgia plays Gardner-Webb in baseball starting on Saturday as well. Um, so I do want to start talking about baseball because I, I feel like they deserve some time there now that we have an actual series and a week of play there to actually evaluate a little bit. Georgia's going into this weekend, 4-1, and one, and they are um, playing. It's going to be a crazy weekend for them. They're playing two doubleheaders this weekend. So they're playing a doubleheader on Saturday now and on Sunday because Friday, tomorrow, the 26th, it's expected to rain. So inclement weather, they're just going to go ahead and push that game and play two doubleheaders this weekend. That's tough, but they're seven in games, obviously. So it's shortened the games a little bit in that aspect, which helps your bullpen and stuff as far as that goes. But it does kind of put some wear on your position players. But we have a lot of talent and young guys as well to kind of step in. Plus, a lot of these guys play tournaments and stuff in summer ball, and they play several games in a day. Like They get used to it, so it's not going to be too crazy there. And it is early in the season. Uh, they might be a little bit sore afterwards, but I think they'll be all right for the game. So let's just we'll, – we'll jump right into it. I mean, it was a good start to the season for Georgia. Going 4-1, yeah, we're playing against Evansville first, and but Georgia State on Wednesday was a good win as well. Yeah, and the thing that really – took me by surprise was Corey Collins. And he has just come out of the gates flaming hot. He's a true freshman. He's already hit two home runs, batting 462. And he is just absolutely pounding the ball right now. And then also, of course, um, after watching the first game against Evansville, it's it was a really frustrating game. Errors were made. Guys were getting walked. I mean, it just seemed like there was a stretch of innings where Georgia couldn't get out of a situation. They were shooting themselves in the foot. And then they had a situation where they got – they got bailed out, got a free guy on base, and then they couldn't do anything with it. And uh, and then, of course, also a bunch seemed like none of the replay, the plays that went under review were turned to Georgia's way either. So it was just a frustrating game one. But then, man, after that, they ca they came back, bounced back. Fielding looked a lot better. Pitching was really solid, and the pitching was really solid as well with three starting freshmen as well on the mound. So it was good to see that. And so it was really. It's really good to see Georgia bounce back after that first loss to someone like Evansville and not get discouraged. Just know that if they keep playing their brand of baseball, that they'll get wins. And that I think they're looking really solid this year based on from what I see. And then also to add on that, we still have two pitchers on Georgia, uh, two upperclassmen pitchers, or not upperclassmen, but two pitchers with experience that Georgia does not have currently because of injury. So really excited to see how this year pans out for Georgia, just based on the look of things from Wednesday and this last weekend. Yeah, and I want to talk about the first game as well. One, we'll start with the fact that it's the first game of the season. These guys have scrimmage. They've seen live pitching against each other at that part. It is hard to get a ton of live like experience as far as live at-bats against really yeah, good guys. Yeah, pitching machine right? doesn't give you like, a it's live pitching. It's nowhere near the same. When I was in, in high school when I was playing, the pitching machine like it, it almost messed me up as a hitter too because you couldn't really get your timing down because you – the, my uh, my coach would always hold the ball up in the air above his head right before he would drop it in. And so that you're trying to time up as far as like when your step is. Most of the time, go watch – like when you watch the game this weekend, watch the guy when they start their step. They start their step before that ball ever leaves the pitcher's hand because the ball is going – they're going 90-plus miles an hour. Some of them going 100 miles an hour. Their foot has to start moving before the ball leaves their hand. And so if you're facing a pitching machine, you, it, it's not the same timing – and you can't use your starting pitchers and your bullpen guys to throw live BP to these guys all the time either because it's not good for their arms and you don't want to throw their, their arm out or their shoulder out or something like that. So that's the first thing I want to say. Our offense to me was we couldn't put enough together 
on Friday, right? So we had seven hits, which to me, seven hits is enough to be able to score a few runs. But Georgia only was able to play two runs in that. And C.J. Smith, to me, he had a good start on the mound. It was the first game of the year when you have offense not really giving you a ton of help. Um, I think it was it was extremely important for him to have a good offensive performance from the guys, at least to put up three plus like runs. I mean, two runs against Evansville isn't going to cut it. You know, he got in trouble in the third inning and after two outs, you know, he got the first guy to strike out swinging and he got the next guy to pop out to the shortstop. And then, you know, followed by they hit a single, the guy stole a base. He's on second. The next guy hits a single and scores a run. So that's the earned run he gave up. So he pitched, I'll go ahead and give his stat line. So he pitched four innings and gave up two runs, but only one earned run. So there was that one earned run right there. That's followed by a walk. And then the guy pops up, and I believe it was just a drop ball or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but there was an error by the – no, 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 it was a line drive or a ground ball to third. And Garrett Blaylock just pooched it, and it kicked off behind the shortstop so nobody could get to it. And that play would have ended the inning, and it would have got out of trouble. That would have only been one run on the board. At that point, that changes a lot for Georgia there too. And, and it changes his entire performance on the mound as well. Once again, he still pitched really well. He got into two-out trouble there a little bit with the walk and, and singles coming up that way. And I think he got in two-out trouble again, I think, in the fourth inning before he – he ended up working out of that as well and not giving up anything there. But he got into two-out trouble a little bit. Just needs to work on getting that inning closed – or those innings closed out once he gets the two outs. But I know him personally, and I know that, you know, it's early in the season too. He'll definitely develop as the season goes. Plus, he's the only – he was the only senior – only non-freshman in our starting rotation for a four-game series last week. Now this week we're actually adding one more. Um, I don't know if y'all saw that or not as well, but Ryan Webb is going to be able to play this week. You know, he had COVID last week, so he wasn't pitching. So he's going to be in the, that rotation this week. So that'll help a lot as far as experience goes. And then to touch base on two, Corey Collins definitely played very well at the plate. He, he was killing it. I mean, I think he was um, – I saw the stat earlier. I think he was like 6 for 13 or something – and he had two home runs this week, including one against uh, Georgia State, which was his second one of the season. And there was one play, though, and I know I tweeted about this. I don't know if y'all saw this as well. It was early in the game, and it could have made a difference as far as that first game goes as well because it was – I believe there was no outs. He was on second base, and then all of a sudden there's a ball in the dirt, and he kind of hesitates, right? Like he hesitated and then broke the third – and it didn't look like he had that full speed sprint going at third. Like he just kind of got caught thinking he should go, but didn't at first. And then he decided, he's like, wait, no, I needed to. So then he broke and he, he got that hesitation. When you hesitate when like that in college, especially, you just need to stay where you're at because the last thing you can do is make that out at third right there. No, I think it was, no, there were two outs. That was the, yeah, no, no, no. There were already two outs. We had a runner. I'm sorry. I missed messed up that whole scenario. I'm, I'm remembering now. So we had a runner on first and second. He was on second with two outs. So it made the third out of the inning at third base, which when I played, that was the, the biggest no-no that I've ever been taught. If you ever, you would run, if you, anybody that's played baseball probably has heard this term, you'd run poles. And so after, after that game, you would be running poles and that's foul pole to foul pole is like going to one and back. That's one. At least that's what it was for us. And so we would run like five, 10 of those and you'd be dying. That's what you would have been doing if you broke to third and made that third out of the inning at third base when we could have scored. Cause you're not the third out at third, you're not any closer to scoring unless there's a wild pitch and maybe you can score off of that, but you still needed a base hit 
to score from third, really, unless there is a wild pitch or something. You're in scoring position a second already. That's why you don't do that. Yeah, and, I mean, chances are, anyways, any ball hitting the outfield, you're scoring from second base anyways. So, yeah, you never want to make the last out of an inning at third base. And it's just small things like that that you notice in the first game. You know, guys making simple errors and um, stuff like that. But and then, but then they also bounce back. I think it was on Sunday when Riley King hit the walk-off line drive to win the game. I mean, so it's just stuff like that. It, it was easy to see that quickly Georgia – clean things up very quickly in the field. They cleaned it up batting wise. People gain more confidence at the plate. So I think they're going in. They've had a really nice weekend and then another great game off of Georgia State. So heading into this weekend against Gardner Webb, I think we'll see even more improvements. Guys gaining some, a little bit more confidence. They really got this thing rolling now. Absolutely. And the walk-off, I believe, was Saturday. I think it was the second game of the yeah. doubleheader on Saturday. You're right, you're right. And then speaking of Riley King, Riley King is, is hitting really well to start as well. I think he had a big um, – did he hit a home run on Wednesday as well against yes. Georgia State? He, yes, he, he, he hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the – or top of the ninth, um, which was a huge shot right there because it put us up by four runs instead of only being up by two. And going into the ninth inning, like it's a huge – four-run cushion is massive because you you run your uh, next guy out there. It's not even a save situation anymore. You know, you go from a save situation where you got a guy out there trying to secure the win and slam the door shut – to now it's not even considered a save anymore and it was just a huge boost going into it it's it's a motivator too for your pitcher it's a motivator for your your uh, entire squad everybody's excited it's easier to close that game out like that it was a massive home run to really kind of push that win as well and then like you said though we're going into the weekend uh series here against garner webb you know cj is going to start game one again after he went four innings and four hits two runs like i said only one earned then you're going to have you're going to have Ryan Webb start game two on Saturday now since it's a doubleheader. He'll start game two. I, I believe I saw that he was going to be limited to th or three innings pitch because they're going to slow ease him into it. Last year, Ryan Webb in his five relief appearances, which, by the way, he was a relief pitcher last year, which a lot of guys come in. They're all starters in, in high school, and they come in and they kind of fill in different roles. He, he played a relief role for us last year. He may have ended up becoming a starter later in the season, but we only played 18 games, so we never really figured out where it would go. But he pitched 15 innings. In that 15 innings, he was 2-0. and He had a 1.2 ERA, and he struck out 26 guys but only walked five. So he showed flashes of pure excellence, and I'm extremely excited to see him get his three innings in, see what he looks like. You know, and then on Sunday now, it'll be the first game of Sunday. That's when we're going to get uh, Jaden Woods out there again, which he pitched 4.2 innings on Saturday in the second game of the doubleheader and gave up three runs on three hits, one walk and two strikeouts. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes through it again. He got in a little bit of trouble in the fifth is where he really kind of struggled. He was cruising through, though. I know he had like a perfect third and fourth inning pretty much, perfect first inning, I believe. So he gave up a home run in the second and then he gave up a home run again in the fifth and got in a little bit of trouble before he was pulled out. Um, and then we closed that off afterwards. I think one of his runs were inherited to the next guy that actually counted on his. And then you'll have another freshman, Charlie uh, Goldstein. He had a short appearance this week as well, though. On Sunday, he only pitched two innings, so it was a short game for him. I'm not sure. I think it was probably just because this was his first collegiate you know, appearance. Last year, he redshirted. So he's, fresh, he's a redshirt freshman, so last year – he didn't play at all, plus it was a short season, so maybe he would have at one point, but it, the way it played out, it just made sense not to. Um, but he only had two innings, so I'm excited to see what he'll do this weekend. And then we'll have 
Kennesaw State on Tuesday at five o'clock um, for the midweek game. So another, you know, you always play like a Georgia team or somebody kind of close in the midweek because you only play one game. So um, that'll be a fun one. It's always fun to play against Kennesaw State. It's usually a pretty good matchup as well. So I'm excited to see how all of this goes. I'm excited this baseball season again. Me too. I'm glad because especially when, you know, football gets in the off season, you always, you're always looking for other stuff to occupy your time because football seems to take up a lot more time than you realize that even during the weekday. So it's always nice to have, you know, some basketball games sprinkled in, but then also have like baseball games where it's like every single weekend and then you can get sometimes two or three games to the weekdays. So it just helps pass the time to get to football season, which I know we are always anticipating and always eager to get to. So great to have baseball back for sure. Absolutely. And I'm glad you just brought up basketball. That's obviously something we have to talk about right now. So we played Florida and we played LSU since the last time we met. Obviously, we know we played a really good game against LSU. Xavier Wheeler hitting triple-double, the first one in Georgia history. So go ahead and give us a little bit of insight on what, what this past week looked like, Kyle. This past week was all frustration. You know, even though Georgia really dominated LSU, because I left that game thinking, well, can we say any negative thing about this game? Like, yes, there is. Uh, why can't you play like this more often, Georgia <laughs> basketball? Because if you play like – because LSU is one of the better teams in the SEC. LSU is a team that should have smacked Georgia around based on how Georgia had played against Tennessee and uh, Bama the uh, week before. But instead, Georgia just comes out. Of course, you said Sabir Wheeler had the first triple-double in school history. Um, all those assists he got accounted for 33 points, which when that happens, I mean, that's just – George's offense, he's going to always get in the paint just on his driving. Defense has to make him choose if he's going to shoot or pass. So when those guys are, are making shots off his passes, it is a huge deal. And George's almost impossible to stop when that happens. But they don't always make shots, and that's why they lose to uh, Tennessee. And that's why they're smacked around by uh, Alabama three yeah. days later. And that's why they uh, struggle to score against Florida. Yeah, and I will point out one thing. When we kind of mentioned and talked about this a little bit before we jumped on the show tonight, one thing that I was so happy to see with this win against LSU was the, the biggest stat line for me was three-point shooting because typically if you look back on the season, if we shot a ton of threes or we were missing a bunch of threes, we, we would almost always lose the game because it would just – if they weren't dropping, then we just kept trying and we would just fall behind other team would be scoring, and then we would just have these empty possession after empty possession. Well, Georgia shot eight for 30 from three, right? And in the first half, they were three for 12. But in the game, they shot 27 or no, 26%. And typically when we shoot like that from three, it's not a good game, especially when we have 30 attempts. The difference was well, there was two big points of this. One, LSU was also shooting just as poorly. I think they also had around 30 attempts. And the biggest thing that I said earlier as well was, they weren't all empty possessions. Georgia was doing a really good job at chasing down those three sometimes. I know there was one in the second half where we actually shot a three from the corner. It bounced away. It was uh, offensive rebound. They kicked it back out to the corner again. They shot a second three, missed that one too. We got the second offensive rebound of that possession and then put up a layup and scored two points off of it. So those two empty shots, we still scored two points in that possession because we got those <clears throat> offensive rebounds, which we did that a few times. And I think that was a big difference for us. The other biggest, like the the other big stat line for me was the turnovers. I think we only had 11 turnovers in that game, which for us is a big difference because we averaged 
somewhere around 17 going into a couple games ago. I remember seeing that stat. It was like 17 per game, which is a ton. We were last in the SEC, and so you can't really win that much like that. But only turning the ball over 11 times, it made a big difference. Plus, I counted because I was curious. We talked about this. Jonathan and I did. One of the big reasons we turn the ball over so much is because we're feeding the ball inside, and it's just passes that don't connect when, like up under the rim when we're trying to feed it in for that you know short shot, the, the layup, the dunk, whatever it is. In those 11, I think five of them that I noticed, and I, I kind of started paying attention a little bit late, so I may not have seen all of them, but five of the 11 that I remember were passes to the inside. So that means only we had six turnovers other than that outside of it, which is important because if we're going to be aggressive and score in the paint a ton like that, you're going to not need to turn the ball over in other aspects as well. Because, I mean, I think that's all right. Identity. We talked about this before. We try to get in the paint and get those points in the paint. That's been a big thing for us. I know in the paint this game, we scored 40 points in the paint against LSU. Like I said, that's been the identity this year. And so that's why we turn the ball over so much, I think. Yeah, and back on turnovers, I mean, you're never going to have a zero turnover game in basketball. Um, there's turnovers you can live with and turnovers you can't live with. Georgia just – that's really, really the killer. Georgia commits too many turnovers you can't live with, and they prevented those um, against against LSU. There were no bad passes to the uh, like outside around around the perimeter. Um, we've seen a lot of times this year guys trying to dribble in in the zone and getting stripped. We didn't see that against LSU. Like it was like like you said, it was it was all those turnovers you can live with, just trying to feed feed it down low when the ball's deflected or passes it called, but you're still like turnover like you still lose the lose the ball near the rim. And that's where you kinda of, kinda of, if you're gonna lose it anywhere, that's where you want it. Yeah, because when you start getting into places where you know guys are dribbling in the zone, they're getting stripped, that's where fast breaks happen. That's where easy buckets get happen. And it's just a like I told Jeremiah last week, it's just Georgia gives teams too many free possessions, extra possessions. And that's why Georgia struggles with scoring as well because you're, you just took a possession away from you, and then you gave that possession to the other team. And more times than not, turnovers lead to points. And so that's where Georgia really gets into danger a lot of the times in games. And, that, and then also, of course, turnovers kill momentum and or any effort that you're trying to gain any momentum back, which we've seen Georgia do a good number of times. They have gotten momentum back on their side like they did in Missouri, and they came back and won the game. But when you get into such a big hole with turnovers, it just, it just kills the entire offense. Usually guys get frustrated. Confidence goes away for players. So when Georgia is able to control the turnovers, they're able to get the ball into the post. They're able to really just center everything around getting the ball in the post, throwing it back out to the corner or back up to three-point line or finishing inside. That's where Georgia thrives, and that's where we see Georgia have so much success and where they're actually enjoyable to watch, and it's not as frustrating, and you're not shaking your head and just – wanting to throw your TV remote through the wall or anything like that. And so when Georgia is able to do those things, they look like a completely different basketball team, and they actually look like they belong in the middle or near the top of the SEC at times. Yeah, and you you pointed out something really good too because points off of turnovers, we only gave up nine points off of turnovers in that game against LSU and then also only gave up 13 fast break points, which LSU was trying to push the ball quickly. And they would. that's, that's why I think Georgia was – able to keep them from coming back like that. So they were throwing up threes and stuff like that a ton, but they were also coming down and immediately pulling up as soon as they get to the arc. They weren't trying to pass the ball around enough, and and they were trying to score quickly. So only giving up 13 fast break points, one is really good, plus it kind of helped Georgia because they were trying to score those fast break points. They were trying to get down there quickly, weren't trying to have the full half-court possession kind of thing, pass around, and they weren't hitting those threes and stuff when they were trying. So 
Georgia was able to hold them off. I was extremely happy to see too because Georgia didn't let them come back in the game. Mm -hmm. So we took a 20-point lead in the second half. We were up by 20. The closest I think I got, I saw it get back to, you know, a couple minutes go by, they start scoring a little bit. I think they brought it down to about a 12-point game. But after that, give it another minute, two minutes, and Georgia was back up by 16, 18 points because they let them go. I mean, basketball is a game of runs, so you're going to come down and miss a couple shots. Georgia was doing a really great job at not having too many back-to-back empty possessions. And so even if we went down and missed one of those threes, we would typically come back down on the next possession and, and put something in and actually score some points, which is key because it's you can't hold a lead like that when you're you're having too many empty possessions in a row, shooting those threes and stuff like that. You let the team back in the game, and, and they never let them back in the game. Yeah, big reason why they prevented the cutback was transition defense was outstanding. Was there, were, there were a lot of times I can think of when LSU got a few passes, it looked like they were up, up, like good, good for a fast break or something quick in transition, and then you just, like, look at the whole court and all and all the uh, all, all the white jerseys are there, are there already. That, that that was the big reason why they just prevented the, the, the comeback. I mean, when you have transition defense like that, you're going to prevent runs because you're going to prevent the things that lead to the momentum changes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and speaking on defense, actually, I saw this stat the other day on Twitter where, of course, this the stat is not glamorous in high sight, but towards the beginning of the season, Georgia was ranked around 132nd, I think, in the entire NCAA in defense, and they have now jumped about 25 spots from that now towards the end of the season. Early in the season, defense was definitely a problem, and it guys were just getting buckets at ease against Georgia. But I think a big shift, and we've said this a lot of times, but I really do believe this. I think a big shift in where things started to change was when Katie Johnson was able to come out on the floor because he is, he, in my opinion, he is the anchor on the defense because he is so active with his hands. And just even if you don't deflect the ball in basketball, when guys active with their hands, it it changes an offense and it changes the like patterns of which the ball can move and who can be passed to and whatnot. So with him just being out there on the court and just being a threat to an offense when he's out there defensively, I think it changes everything for the opponent's offense. And of course, also on the offensive side, he's phenomenal as well. So I think really it was when Katie Johnson became eligible is when things really started to turn for Georgia. And I think it's been really refreshing to see that despite um, Georgia being fifth from last in the SEC right now, that they're still motivated to win and they're still motivated to do as best they can and give it everything that they have on the floor every single night. And kudos to Tom Crean for keeping this team motivated. Yeah, Georgia is uh, – they're ranked 10th in the SEC right now. And then one of the big things, too, about Katie Johnson, not even just what he's doing defensively like himself. He's brought, like, a completely different energy level on the court, and it's infectious. It makes a big difference. One thing that um, – I know I mentioned this a, a few minutes ago – or not a few minutes ago, but before we came on as well, like some of the the commentators for the LSU Georgia game were phenomenal. They were they were bringing up great points. They were pointing out a lot of comments and stuff from Crane and stuff. One of the things they said was Tom Crane said that this team, one of the things he was focused on, and he had to get them to to understand and learn, which comes from youthfulness. On this, out before I even say it, I'll start by saying it's a youthful thing. They needed help understanding how much time was left in a game because. They that was part of their issue. They they would get down a little bit, and then their brain, you know, or from their mentality would change to, oh, it's too late. The game's you know too close to being over. We don't have enough time, and so then it just they don't play as hard. They don't you know think they have a chance, so they don't 
push as much and they don't make those big plays because they just they don't think they can do it. Same thing goes when they're ahead. They are up by a decent amount and they're like, oh, we got this. We're cruising. We got, you know, there's not that much time left. And all of a sudden the team starts creeping back because in basketball, you know, three possessions can be nine points for another team. And if you came back empty on those three possessions, all of a sudden they gain nine points on you. Like it's it's that quick. And that's one thing that they pointed out. And I was like, that's a phenomenal thing to see and, and you could see the difference we talked about this early on too our our energy level and stuff what we, we just didn't look like we were playing the full 40 minutes and that was we talked we made that com- that exact comment several weeks ago at this point early in the season when we had i think we had gone oh and four in sec play we made that comment and it makes a huge difference now i'll say this the season is it feels over i'm not going to completely slam the door on it because Today, they just came out and scheduled us a huge matchup. So we assumed we would play somebody like Texas A&M again for a makeup game. But well, yeah, they just gave us Bama. Yeah, because that's, 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 that's a game that was canceled. Yeah, that's a game yeah. we lost. They gave us Bama on March 6th. It is like it's like clockwork with these shows. Like an hour before we go to start, a news drop, like big news dropped. So me and Jonathan have to rush over here. And Brooks is already doing his show, so no one can get to it on the site. Uh, it's like clockwork every week. But, yeah, I mean, that that is huge. That Because I thought, you know, losing, not get, being able to play A&M, getting that uh, should be win because A&M's not very good. Um, I thought losing to Tennessee and Bama and then Florida, just not having enough good wins to have a shot at the tournament, no matter what they did in the SEC tournament. Now you give Georgia Bama, you give them that, off, that chance. I mean, that's the top team in the SEC. As a team that's look, look, looking at, uh, I know before um, their most recent loss, they're looking at a two seed. Uh, don't know if that'll really change. Loss Arkansas is not a, a bad loss at all. Um, yeah, that is such a huge opportunity for Georgia. That would just completely fix their, their resume if they can win it. Well, right. So Bama is ranked number one in the SEC right now at thirteen and two. They've only lost those two games. Georgia currently ranked 10th in the SEC. Like I said, we we assumed it would be Texas A&M for the makeup game because that was who got canceled out. But Texas A&M is currently 12th in the SEC out of the 14 teams. So that's not, that game wouldn't have helped us. It would have been nice to add like an extra win on in SEC play. It does help like as far as like the stat line looks. But everyone knows that when it comes to the bracketology and stuff, they look more at strength of schedule and stuff like that too rather than overall wins. And that game probably wouldn't have changed anything. Now, with Alabama being back on there, we got killed the last time. They absolutely killed us, right? So I think that game was 115 to 82. So it, we it got bad. destroyed. It was it was an ugly game from the immediate, you know, they they were shooting and they couldn't miss. It felt like they they shot, you know, speaking of shooting, I think they had 30, you know, around 33 point shots and they shot 60% or something like that. They we're 18 for 30 or somewhere around there. I have to look back at it. I know I said that stat last week, I believe. And all of a sudden, if you can come out here and shock them, it makes a huge difference. Well, I'm and assuming this game is is at home. It is. It is. First game is on the road. Georgia is completely a uh, different team at home. I mean, they're only two and six on the road, but but 12 and three at home, and still five five and three in the SEC at home. And they're on a four-game home home winning streak. Here's the thing: What are the odds that Alabama can shoot like that again? Like for a second time, Georgia scored 82 points. We I usually know, win this year. Yeah, I mean, but 115 points. But th- this is where the Alabama game gets interesting for me. Is it's the last game of the season. So Alabama's at the top of the SEC. They're looking pretty. They're going to be most likely number one seed in the SEC tournament. 
as Kyle said, they're looking at being probably a two seed in the NCAA tournament. I I would not be surprised if Georgia was able to catch Alabama lacking coming down at the end of the season because Alabama the game doesn't matter to the them. The game doesn't matter to them. They're all looking ahead, really. Now, of course, the game does matter in a sense where if Alabama were to lose to Georgia, that really hurts them and maybe where they would be ranked going into the NCAA tournament because they could say, well, your two losses before Georgia weren't too bad, but then you dropped one to Georgia. Now, of course, it really wouldn't matter because they'll still be in the March Madness tournament. But I would not be surprised if Georgia was able to maybe catch Alabama lacking. You know, they got to make the drive up to Athens. They're not on their home floor. Georgia's really excited. They're geeked up because hey, this is a huge opportunity for them. They have the chance to maybe knock off the number one team in the SEC right at the end of the season before going into SEC tournament, really gain some momentum. Whereas Alabama just kind of like, ah, let's just get, get this game over with. We they, really... will, they will already have the, the top seed in the tournament. Yeah, too. exactly. So they, they're probably just thinking like they may come in and be like, hey, let's just get this game over with. We really, we really don't even need to be playing this. We're focused on what we're going to do in the SEC tournament, win the SEC championship. Whereas Georgia's like, hey, we need a resume builder and we need every win that we can right now so that maybe we can possibly just scrap our way into the March Madness tournament. Yeah, I thought that Florida loss was a real killer because I didn't think Georgia has enough good wins to uh, make up for its bad losses. A 30-point loss to Arkansas. South South Carolina loss is terrible. Um, that first loss to Auburn at the time did not look like a bad loss. As the season's going on, it looks like a terrible loss. Um, didn't win any style points against Kentucky, the worst Kentucky team in the past 50 years. Didn't get any style points against Vanderbilt, who's last in this conference. So, I mean, your only good wins are LSU and Missouri. And Ole Miss looks like a fantastic win. Both of those look fantastic right now. Yeah, you got both of those wins, which is definitely big. But I just didn't think those were enough to overcome the bad losses. Now you give them a Bama. Yeah, that's that's going to um, that's going to uh, teeter totter think think things a bit. I still think Georgia's going to need to win multiple games in the SEC tournament, even if they oh, beat yeah. Bama. So we text sure. we were texting texting about this after the Georgia Florida game, right? And we were. We were saying with that loss, we felt like we had been put in a spot where we would like legitimate chances of making the NCAA tournament were weighing on us basically getting to, if not winning the SEC tournament. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like if we made it to the finals, that would give us a good argument because we would have to win what three or four games to get there. No, four games, I believe, to get there. And then that would have been like the fifth game and to play in there, which you're playing against the top team in the country or top one of the top teams in the conference and maybe in the country if it's Bama or somebody like that. And we were saying that maybe if we had beaten Florida, our chances would have been maybe if we just win two games in the SEC tournament, right? Which right now we were slated at one point while we were looking at, we were slated to play like Kentucky or something like that when we were texting about this. And if we played Kentucky, we beat Kentucky once. We knew we could. And so that would mean that we just needed to beat an opponent that was probably better than us one time to give us an argument for it now that we did lose that game, I believe it does open the door back to where we don't necessarily, if we beat Bama, first of all, we have to beat Bama. That's the, I'm going to preface with saying that, like that's a must. You can't lose to Bama or else this argument is irrelevant. The point that I'm going to make is, is completely null and void. You can't even think about it anymore. If they win that game though, and then they go into the SEC tournament, now it goes back down to where like maybe if they win two games, they have a chance to be on the bubble at least or be in the conversation they win three games, I think at that point, like you would have to put them in, yeah. arguably. 
if they make it somehow, if they, but here's the thing, Georgia's one of the hotter teams in, in the SEC at this point. Tennessee's lost a couple games. Bama just lost again. Like some of these teams are losing right now. And Georgia, yeah, we, we lost a couple games in a row or in the, our last stretch here, but we had a lot of big games. It wasn't, it was a stretch. It was a gauntlet, you know, playing Bama, playing Tennessee, playing Missouri. That's a hard stretch to go through. And we talked about this before we even went into that. Like we were wanting to upset somebody. We needed to upset somebody. Multiple people. Multiple people. Mm -hmm. We needed to win Florida. We we said we needed to win that one. And so, which goes back to the conversation after we lost to Florida, you know, that's why our conversation went that way. We said ahead of time that if we were to win the games that we needed to, or were supposed to win, or had it within grasp easily, and then we upset one of those teams between Tennessee, Bama, and Missouri, then we would have a, a legitimate shot. Well, guess what? We did upset Missouri, but that loss to Florida really hurt. Now we have a chance to make up for it. Make up for it big time. And then we make up for like, we get to respond to a loss. That's the thing that'll be really big for me too, is because we got destroyed by, by Alabama. And now we get a chance to prove ourselves on that. Plus the game on Saturday. Yeah, it's South Carolina. And South Carolina is currently 13th in the SEC, but they beat us pretty bad last time too. This game is also at home. We get to have revenge for that loss potentially. So if we can make up for the fact that we get to beat them now, then we beat Bama, the two teams that we have losses to. And then all of a sudden you do a little bit of that. At that point, you got to be feeling hot too. Think about that. If you come off a win against Alabama and then going into the SEC tournament, you're going to be feeling good about yourself. Yeah, I'd say Carolina's almost more of a must win than Bama. Oh, at least, sure. oh, a, that's at least with Bama, win. you could you might have one more game against them if uh, you play if you uh, play your cards right in the SEC tournament. South Carolina, that's just a bad loss. You can't lose that come. game. Yeah. You know, at, at the time they lost to Carolina, the way that was, uh, they had missed some games because of COVID. So you thought, oh, maybe Carolina might be better better than their record. But since beating Georgia, they are, they haven't done anything. No. Uh, that loss just looks worse and worse each week. You got to rectify that. Yeah, Georgia is <clears throat> Georgia essentially has to win out for the rest of the season. Nearly, I was now depending on what happens or whatnot, maybe a appearance in the semifinals of the SEC tournament or an appearance or just an appearance in the SEC championship would maybe get you in the bracket. But I would venture to say that Georgia, you pretty much have to win out for the rest of your games if you're looking at wanting to reach the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be exciting to see. We're inching close to, you know, a little over an hour and 20 minutes now. So we're going to let this wrap up. I'm excited to see what Georgia baseball does this week. We get a second full series in, get to see Ryan Webb pitch a little bit, a lot on the line for Georgia basketball this se- like this next week. Um, actually, we'll meet again before we play Alabama because that game's not until the sixth. So we'll meet one more time before then. And so we'll have a little bit more time to, to evaluate where we're at. We'll be able to touch base again on if we could beat South Carolina, South Carolina or not. So we'll have a little bit more understanding where we stand at that point. We'll see how stuff is lining up at that. We're getting really close to March madness at that point in sec tournament. So I think the sec tournament starts on like the 10th. So we're getting, we'll be, we'll be right there on the cusp of it. Um, and we'll be able to plan the rest of the way through here. Hopefully we'll do some damage in the sec tournament and everything like that, but we'll get to that later on. I appreciate you. If you listen this long, have a great night. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Dogs Daily on Sports Illustrated. Take a second to subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends and family. Feel free to reach out to the Dogs Daily crew on Twitter with any topics you'd like discussed. 
You can reach out to Jeremiah at Jeremiah underscore Stodd 7, to Kyle at DK Fubderberg, and Jonathan at 22 underscore J-Man. Check back next week for a brand new episode. In the meantime, go dogs. Go dogs.